want to thank all of our listeners for several years of dedicated and loyal listening throughout the Halo Talks 400 podcast completed to date. We're going to 1,000 by 2024. If you're so inclined, we'd love to have you go to iTunes for us, fill out a review so we can keep this podcast rolling globally. We are now on Chartable's top lists and moving up the charts. Also, if you want to educate yourself in the new year, please go to thehaloacademy.com. Take a look at what we've done with 150 executives in the Halo sector to get them smarter, get them prepared for capital raises, and also more winning. Thanks. Have a great season. Let's go. This is Pete Moore on Halo Talks NYC on location, URSA 2023 San Diego, here with my fast friend and good friend, Garrett Marshall, Exponential Fitness, talk about his journey and career in the digital and the streaming side and how Exponential is now on top of the franchisor world, providing best-in-class product services and digital distribution. So, Garrett, welcome to your first Halo Talks, my friend. I'm sure you're a little bit nervous. No, I'm not too bad. Oh, really? But, <laughs> what do you know, buddy? But, but we've had a, we had a, a conversation prior, so it's totally my pleasure. Excellent, excellent. We'll get to have you on the show. Um, look, why don't we give you a quick background on on where you started, how you uh, you know handled the the fitness on demand build out, and then how you got recruited to Exponential, just to give people a little bit of flavor for you know a career path and a journey. Sometimes takes time to get to to where you want to go and progress, you know, happens episodically. And then we'll talk about where you are today. Yeah, oftentimes it feels like two steps forward, one step backward. I hear that, bro. That's yeah. kind of like, got to two-step this whole thing. You know, and, <laughs> and before we kick into it, I just want to say on the record, which I said to you, I think I saw you earlier in the spring in Los Angeles. And I said, you know, in my, I've, and this is a segue into my career. I've been in the industry for 20 years. And I told you, I said, I think we were waiting at Valet. Yeah. And I was like, Pete Moore, that's an iconic name to me because there's so many times that I've referenced <laughs> information that you've put out. So, no, it, it's it's awesome to be here. Thank you for inviting I, I, me. I appreciate that. And, and look, I mean, sometimes, you know, facts are made up, you know, and, and, and percentages, but I, I'll stand by everything that you've repeated. Uh, <laughs> Fake to, it till you to, make it. Yeah, to date. But take me back. Look, I was an entrepreneur in the, in the digital side of this industry back in 2000 and 2003. Uh, ran websites when there was no broadband, there was no Wi-Fi, and way ahead of its time. So, you know, you might have been on the cusp of a little bit ahead of its time as well. So talk about Fitness On Demand, what got you into that, and kind of, you know, what your longevity has been to kind of keep that going when you were doing that and now where you're at now. We are in, per we've got a perfect linear sequence going. So 2003 is when I really started my professional career. So this year I've been in the industry now for 20 years on the dot. Um, the first roughly five and a half years, I was with Lifetime Fitness, and I fell into fitness as a complete fluke. Actually, I was playing hockey at the time. I grew up playing a lot, you know, very involved in athletics, and uh, I got pretty serious with hockey after school, and uh, I was playing hockey in Canada, needed a shoulder surgery, came back to Minneapolis, which is where I lived before, and I really, I was just looking for free membership so that I could continue to train, rehab, and go back to hockey. And for some reason I couldn't explain to you now, I had a first aid instructor certificate, which enabled me to teach swimming lessons to kids. And that's how I got involved in Lifetime Fitness at the as, time. As a barter? Yeah, as a barter for free membership. <laughs> 
<laughs> and from from that point in time, I have no swimming experience either, by the way, oh, but really? I was old enough to, I guess, keep, keep the kids alive. Okay. So okay. I got involved at, with Lifetime, and over that course of five and a half, six years, I did everything that you could possibly do within the side of the four walls of a of one of their you know 200,000 square foot fitness facilities, and uh, eventually never looked back. I I, I sort of um, made my way up through um, various sales positions on the retail side, and then eventually made my way into corporate. During that um, five and a half year tenure, uh, that was when uh, I experienced the first IPO. Uh, very much from a distance, though, yeah. you know, being someone who at that time was uh, on the retail side. Um, but spent five and a half there, uh, years there. Um, around 2007, in the downturn of the economy, I, you know, I loved the Lifetime product, still do. Um, but I felt like I was doing a lot of travel. I was in a corporate role where I'd go out and I would um, help hire the sales staff, the general manager, and was responsible for the performance of new clubs for the nine months before they opened. We, typically, there'd be like a That's fourth. a long grand opening. It, they don't uh, do it like that anymore. But back in the day, was. the membership targets were four to 5,000 memberships before the, uh, before the club would actually open. So I was really responsible for that. And then the performance of those new clubs uh, for the first 12 months. And the economy slowed down, opening slowed down. And so I, you know, I started thinking to myself, I'm on the road all the time. You know, I, I, I want to be an entrepreneur. I, want to, I was involved in technology and I thought to myself, you know, um, th this is what I want to do. I want to go try small company startup. And I ended up finding two people in Minneapolis who had a prototype of a product. Oh, okay. uh, a business was launched called Fitness on Request, which three years later became uh, rebr was rebranded as Wellbeats. It actually sold last year to a healthcare oh, company. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A Toronto-based company. It, good memory, exactly. Yeah. So I was part of the found, founding team Maybe I team did research that. before this. Oh, no, I, I just remember The that. way you call that. that, you had to. <laughs> so no, so that, that was step two. Step three uh, was Fitness On Demand. So I, I launched that business and was the CEO there for eight years, which uh, Fitness On Demand was a subsidiary of Lyft Brands, uh, which is involved in a number of other portfolio companies around the fitness franchise yeah. space. And uh, after doing that for eight years, met Anthony and um, left to uh, Tax Financial Fitness, which yeah. is where I'm now. So, you know, as you've, you know, you started, you know, on the technology side, I'd say probably when there was actually an appetite for it, not necessarily um, me as like an evangelist trying to get people to use the internet. It kind of originally hoped it would go away, right? It's like oh, another thing that I don't understand that I need to get up to speed with. Like, just give me leads from the internet and I put them center on my fax machine. Like, this is how it kind of started. Yeah, this is a fact. Getting lead, yeah. Or, or I just need to have a, you know, I need to have my flyer online digitally on a yeah. website. Yeah, and hopefully, like, I don't need to do much more than that. Um, but when you got into fitness on demand and you started to see how club operators and how hospitality and, and how much they maybe didn't embrace the, the, the delivery of the content or didn't really market it internally, you know, a lot of that was because like they didn't really understand it. Um, it wasn't their core business. So as you kind of think back to where the industry was and where it is today, you know, how, how do you view what's mission critical? Um, how do you think of Expo when it comes to, you know, the digital providing provider on behalf of your franchisees? And, you know, obviously we went through COVID where it was like, I, you got to be on digital. I got invested in now. It's like, yeah, I kind of want a hybrid and I don't want people to not come to my locations. Like, I mean, that's the benefit of Expo is I got thousands of locations and I got multiple brands. So 
There was a question somewhere in there, so if you want to figure out where it was, like where's Waldo, <laughs> feel free to pick it out or answer any question of your choice. <laughs> no, that uh, there's a lot of good there's a lot of good things we could unpack with that. Um, I think the first part of that, there's no question that from you know 2003 to now, there's been so much evolution and acceptance for the adoption of technology. I still remember back going back to the fitness on request days when that was really the first product of its kind. It was very simple. It was like, hey, throw this in your studio and you can make your studio accessible 24 hours a day using videos. And back then I remember, you know, it was received very well, um, but it was totally a crossing the chasm type of experience. Right. So in the beginning we were, we sold it to 3000 clubs in the first three years, but they were all independents and mom and pop operators, no enterprise, f large full service uh, brands were, ad were uh, adopting that product. And I remember a lot of objections at the time, like, hey, you know, we're true cycling, true spinning, and we're all about this experience and that, and we would never incorporate technology in the ride. It just, it's against the grain of what that experience is. Right, and right. then you fast forward 10 or 15 years later and you see, well, you really can't have an elevated spin experience if you haven't incorporated technology that shows riders, their biometrics, performance metrics throughout the ride. And so it's completely changed 180, deg 180 degrees in, in that span of time. And I'm sure if I had experience beyond that, even more so. Yeah. Um, so that's that. Um, and, and I think you, you raised a good point too about um, we've kind of gone through that um, hype cycle of, you know, you new new technology becomes a kind of like the, 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 the water cooler talk. There's a mm -hmm. lot of buzz around it. Today, it's all AI, personalization, machine learning, all this stuff people talk about, but there's no real strong application taking place. And then there's kind of a lull and then, then it starts to gain, then it starts to accelerate again and it comes yeah. back. And so I think today, um, the, our industry has to think more carefully about how to implement technology, not for the sake of the technology itself, but really aligning what that technology provides with the core value that they provide to their audience and end customer. Yeah. Do you ever play that game back in the day called uh, Shoots and Ladders? Oh, yeah. So I, I kind of look at technology right now in this industry that there's so many things being pushed on people. At, like It's like, hold on a second. I got to try and get up this staircase without like too many more shoots. And like as you introduce a new technology, like it doesn't stand on its own. It affects other things that I'm doing and current technologies that I'm already trying to deploy, which I haven't even really deployed yet successfully. And I would say this as a joke at the at that Connected Fitness Conference. I'm like, you can't have artificial intelligence until you have intelligence, right? <laughs> so as you kind of look and say, you know, at your, in your current position of kind of, you know, I don't know what the best, I know what your title is, but like, if you're gonna like puppeteer and say like, hey, let's drop these technologies in, but let's drop them in sequentially. And you know what? We don't need to be the first mover at this one. Let's, let's nail this, the, the, the one that we're currently working on before you kind of add, oh, we're going to do all of our things in chat GPT. Like, hold on a second. Like, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. That's not like, you're not solving the frustration that I currently have. And I'm actually trying to solve these other frustrations. So how do you, as a technology executive, you know, have like the blinders on to say like, yeah, I'm going to keep feeding my brain with all this different information and new things. But I also have a way in my brain of calibrating like, this is what, how this is going to roll out. Great idea, 2025. 
great idea, 2027. You know, how do you kind of do that without getting yourself crazy if I get like an insight into your, how you work? Yeah, you know, it's funny. So I, I've like the last 15 plus years of my career have been in and around technology with an emphasis on software and video distribution. But I'm not like a sleep outside of Apple the night in a tent the night before the new iPhone type of guy. Right, right. So what really excites me is how you how you can use technology to solve real problems that are that are nascent, not just technology for the sake of you know technology or bells and whistles. Um, and so so I think that. Um, I don't know if there is a ma magic bullet answer for that for that question. Yeah. Um, well, you do make a great point, though, not to cut you off, but you do make a great point that a lot of software comes around and be like, hey, you should use this. And be like, dude, what, what frustration are you solving? At what cost? How does that affect the rest of my business? And is that a priority frustration that people are really having? Or are you manufacturing a problem that you think I, I have because you want to sell me something? Yeah, grabbing yeah. a solution and trying to find a problem for it. I think that... Uh, I, I think that there's, you know, the answer to that is there's a strategic uh, exercise that needs to happen before you go chase down technology. The problem with technology is, oftentimes to be successful with it involves different business models, and you can spend a bunch of money ch chasing the implementation of technology and not see the ROI that that you're expecting. And so, uh, fr a friend of mine told me recently, and I thought it was a perfect analogy. He goes, "I feel like everybody in the industry, or a lot of people in the industry." Like they're running out and they're hiring uh, people to pour cement for a foundation. They're hiring out a framing company to frame the house, but there was never an architect involved. Yeah, exactly. You know, nobody yeah. actually said, well, we need five rooms because we have three kids yeah. uh, and we want a guest room, right? And so part, a big part of that is going through the strategic exercise to determine where you're going to differentiate and what your value is. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. You know, I used to have these business cards, as I'm sure you can <laughs> attest to when you run your own company, Back before you had Expo, I used to wake up. I'd be like, you know what? I think my um, my I think I'm the chief dream architect <laughs> at Integrity Square. So I got 500 business cards made up, and I, I would say to people, "Hey, you've got a business. It's just like a house. I'm going to help you architect that into reality." So I'm like your chief architect, dream architect. Give me your dream, and I'll architect the reality. To your point, you know, as you kind of look at a at a product roadmap, um, you know, and all these new you know technologies come at you. You know, you kind of look back and be like, hey, so it's not on the roadmap, and you haven't really convinced me that it should be reprioritized on my roadmap. Is that a good synopsis of? T totally, I mean, the most simple framework is, you know, I think you have quantitatively factor for impact and lift on everything, right? And that forces the commercial side of your team or forces you as an individual to go, to actually figure out, like, how much impact is this really gonna have on the business versus the actual lift, right? And when you look through the lens of lift or feasibility, if you wanna say it that way, you're gonna to start to see real limitations, natural limitations that may require you to deprioritize, set something aside or cast it out in the future. Yeah, so if you take a look at what Expo is providing now, obviously publicly traded company, um, sold several thousand um, uh, new franchises uh, in 2022. So a lot of those going to roll out in 2023, 2024. How do you take a look at what is in the corporate overhead and what are you providing from a marketing, from a technology standpoint across all of the brands? And how are you also kind of turning that into a network effect where the Expo, Pat, you know, XPass and also like best practices and co-op marketing you're kind of in a unique position where no one's really pulled off a multi-brand experience under a holding company except in the restaurant industry. 
Yeah, it's it's funny. Anthony Geisler, our CEO, says a lot of time when people compliment him for how great the idea of Expo is. He's like, no, there's there's a million people who have had this idea before, but nobody was really crazy to crazy enough to pull it off. Yeah, it's a tough it's a tough uh, putt. It's you know it's not it doesn't all come together nicely. It comes together with a lot of thought and and a lot of inertia and resources and education. It doesn't come Sweat together because it wants to. Yes, totally. And there's also a very delicate balance. You know. Um, the, the the chunk or the majority of our most recent acquisitions were acquisitions, not not. I mean, in fact, they you know Anthony really grew Club Pilates, and we've really uh, grew all the brands from the point that we acquired them. But they were businesses that we purchased when they were of much smaller scale, plugged them into our ecosystem, and then really grew them. Yeah. And so there's this there's a delicate balance of like maintaining the autonomy and what makes that what has led to that brand's proof of concept. And also plugging it in in a way with the systems and processes that allow it to scale, leveraging the shared resources that we have, right? Because if you take too much away, if you if you if you universalize a brand too much, then it loses that appeal that made it popular and successful in the beginning. So it's a del yeah. it is a delicate balance. So how do you think about it, you know, when you're 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 overseeing the streaming, you're overseeing, you know, certain technology tools and apps that that these groups are using, do you look at it and say, okay, this is akin to like Club Pilates, we're gonna roll this out with the Club Pilates franchisees. We're gonna kind of use that as our testing ground. We're gonna figure out what they think, and then we're gonna figure out if it's appropriate to to roll into other other brands. Yeah, how does I mean, that work? Fortunately, depending on the like the technology or the initiative that you're talking about, a lot of the brands when we acquire them, they come with some of their own ideas that have been isolated. We look at the the research and then we figure out if we think it's viable how we scale across the rest of the business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Expo's mission is to make boutique fitness more accessible uh, and to be the most accessible boutique provider on the planet. And if you look back historically on the things that have um, constrained access to boutique, it's really there are three big ones. One is proximity. Uh, because it's a higher price point product, it requires really dense urban markets. So you'd find, you know, if you go back five to 10 years ago, you'd find most of the studios in big urban DSAs. Yeah. Um, it's it's a time-based format because there, you know, all of our brands offer classes. So for certain consumers out there, it just doesn't meet the availability of their schedule. And then there's also just the financial component or price. Uh, and so those are the constraints that we're always trying to find solutions to tear down. So when we look at something like digital as an example, we think of that as a top of the funnel um, solution that provides a lower price point. We sell that for anywhere from $9.99 to $29.99 um, a month. You can mm -hmm. access it anywhere, anytime. And it also reaches well beyond the three-mile business radius or five-mile business radius of one of our physical studios. So we look at that and we've um, strategically um, prioritized that as a top of the funnel. Let's go out and reach far wider than we can with simply our brick and mortar network and leverage that as a way to provide an appetizer to consumers who, for us, if we can move them down funnel into a physical location, obviously that's where we believe we can provide the best value and also best monetize that experience. Yeah. So do you think over time that the bricks and mortar aligned with the, the online programming and the, the connectivity either with the community or and or with your instructor, I view that as kind of, that's got to be the winning strategy. Like, I, you know, people don't want to work out at home. I know I don't. Um, I'll do it if I am pressed for time or if for some reason I, I need to be home, but it's not my priority. And I'm glad 
pleasantly um, validated that when, when COVID did kind of clear, that people did go back and they didn't change their habits to the point where, oh, I don't, I don't want to go to a health club anymore. It's like, bro, you have to leave your house. Like, you, like you're a social animal. Like, act like it. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah exactly. I mean? So, you know, when you take a look at the different brands and say, look, like this, and I don't know if you've like disclosed, like what's the revenue share or like, hey, how do you implement technology in? How do you stay aligned between the franchisor and the franchisee and say like, look, this streaming, I'm not doing it. It's not like a revenue stream, quote unquote, for the franchisor. Like this is basically, I'm just trying to optimize your business and, and, and make your unit economic stronger by not taking up any of your square footage. Like that's, that's where we're at. No, yeah, that's it. And coming back to one of the questions you asked just a minute ago, um, that's where the rubber has hit the road for us. It's the, it's those nuanced decisions and how you communicate with the franchise network that are the hard part. Right. Um, and so for us, digital is a revenue stream uh, for our studios. It's becoming a more important revenue stream. It's still a small part of their overall revenue mix. But also, as you pointed out, we've spent millions in R&D to build out the Num the platforms that we provide this experience across. Yeah. So iOS, Android, web, Fire TV, Roku, Apple TV, uh, we just launched on Sunday at 3 p.m. on every LG consumer TV in the US, there's 30 million of those. We're doing VR content. So nice. last year we create, so in addition to the revenue opportunity for franchise partners, they, they participate in that if they sell digital subscriptions. But then above and beyond that, last year we generated 40 million consumer impressions with consumers who had never experienced any yeah, of our I think brick that, and mortar I mean, that's, brands. That, that, that's the key, I think, you know, from being part of, be, to be a part of a big franchise or operation and network. And you see what Planet's done, you see what Orange Theory's done, you see what, what Exponential's done with, with growth. I think the independent operator, at the end of the day, you know, you're kind of playing checkers and, and somebody else is playing chess, you know? And I feel like anytime somebody hems and haws about, oh, I'm paying these guys 6%, I'm paying them 8% around, I'm like, damn right, dude, you got $10 million of corporate overhead of people like you that wake up every day to make sure that they have better unit economics. Is that only worth 8% of your revenue? Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll take that. I'll, I'll place that bet. Well, and inter it's, interestingly enough, we have several um, direct-to-consumer products we've built out and we service directly. And actually, we don't pull from the royalties to fund those uh, businesses. They run completely independently. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, th that and, and many other things across the, the marketing landscape and operational landscape go to... Uh, uh, go toward that endeavor. So I made an executive decision. This is going to be called part one of our, of our. you know, we'll do another one in like three months yes, after okay, it launches because I got a lot to talk about with you. But there are two things I want to cover now. One is when you take a look at personal training as a percentage of total revenue historically, since I've been in the industry and you've been in the industry, it's like 10 or 12% max of the total population. You know, everyone's like, oh, I spent all this money on digital and only like 5 to 10% of my members you know, or on my digital platform, or even 2%. It's like, you know what, dude? That's okay. It's 2% more than what you had before, right? So, and things are going to continue to evolve where more people are going to be on their mobile phones. It might be the only way to communicate with people, right? They might even not have a laptop in the future. They might take this phone, this iPhone, and, and hit a button, and there'll be a projector screen. I'm just using, that's my monitor, yep. is the wall, right? So I know that everything is going to go through this phone at some point. So... How do you internally either like calibrate for people like, look, yeah, you know what? We got 1%, we got 2%, we got 3%. And you know what? That's good. Don't worry about it. Like, don't shut me down on the technology. Like, we know where it's going. The penetration rate might not be that high, but like, we know it's going in the right direction. So don't, 
don't don't try to like push projections on me of like how many people we can get on board. It's gonna happen. Yeah, yeah. I I I think if you think back to the way you kind of described your own exercise preferences, right? We know consumers are eating off a bunch of different plates and one of the biggest value propositions with digital is just that it's convenient, right? So when you have, inevitably, when you have those life circumstances that prevent you from going into the club or the studio, that's when it, the val kind of the convenience value outweighs the, the community and the ambience and the diversity and equipment and all the other things that you get at a gym or yeah. a studio. Um, and so it's important to keep that in mind. One of the things about digital, once you build the infrastructure to be successful with it, I'm not saying that's right for every you know, co conventional gym operator to do, but once you build it, it's very passive, it's very high margin. Yeah. So even at small percentage, it's meaningful, but probably more important to me in that, maybe we can get to this in part two, because yeah. this is maybe, right now, this is the biggest area of interest for me, is I think one of the greatest th threats to the commercial market is more in search and discovery online, and also in guidance. And so you have to keep in mind that, you know, um, media creation and digital is not just streaming video on demand. It's also about acquiring new consumers, yeah, creating also, awareness. Yeah, and also make it, I think one of the best things during COVID was people were able to actually go on and digest be like, oh, I can actually do that class. And I did it in the, in the comfort of my own home. And now it's not intimidating where it was before. Like you could get me to go into like certain, like a CrossFit workout before and then, you know. Yeah, or you're saying to yourself, I didn't know I could get such a great workout in my living room. Yeah. Right, You had kind of, I know I've had that epiphany yeah. before. Yeah. And, but you should check your floors before you do any kind of yeah. like squat thrusts. On yeah, check there. with your property manager. Check your with apartment. your property manager. Yeah. So, all right. This has been the uh, part one of the uh, the Garrett Marshall PD Mo educational down uh, boot camp, and we are going to continue this. Give me a quote at the end to uh, to to leave with if you got one. Let's think about that. I, I might butcher who said this. I think yeah, it was Mark Andreessen, yeah. but uh, it's it, he he said simple is expensive, and I think that is that's so true. Just and keep it, keep it simple. fitness too. I love it. All right, man. Good to have you on, and uh, look forward to our uh, part two. Thanks keep for the doing great things. Awesome.